of all these trillions of galaxies, trillions of planets that we've talked about, all the stuff we can see, all the stuff we can sense, all that stuff, as immense as it is, only makes up 5% of the universe, right? 95% of the universe is something we don't understand at all. And a massive transformative purpose is what you're telling the world. It's like, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. This is the dent I'm going to make in the universe. Welcome to Moonshots and Mindsets. We're about to enter a 90-minute conversation with an extraordinary astrophysicist, Dr. Amber Strong, who is one of the deputies at the James Webb Space Telescope. This is the telescope launch that's 100 times more powerful than Hubble, a $10 billion mission that took 25 years from inception to launch and has shocked the world with its data. Uh, with Amber's work, we're going to talk about everything from gigantic black holes at the center of every universe, whether alien life form is ubiquitous out there every place, or whether the human race is on its own. We're going to talk about the discoveries that have been made. We've seen further back in time than ever before, 13.8 billion. We've seen more galaxies out there then we can imagine brighter and more numerous. We're going to talk about the other images that have come from Hubble and the future telescopes. In fact, one of the most interesting is going to be the Habitable Worlds Telescope that's going to be looking for life on planets around other star systems, exoplanets. So join me for one of the most extraordinary conversations I've had yet on Moonshots and Mindsets with Dr. Amber Strong and get ready to have the child inside you just explode with awe and excitement. Everybody, Peter Diamandis here. Welcome to Moonshots and Mindsets. I am here as a nine-year-old kid about to have an extraordinary conversation with Amber Strong. Amber, I've introduced you already. I'm so excited. You know, we first met at an XPRIZE event in which you just wowed the audience. And I was like, I want to get your message and everything you stand for out to the world. Good morning. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's um, it's a it's a fun time in space right now. I'll just say. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is between you know Starship about to launch, uh, and uh, you know our missions back to the moon. But I think the James Webb Space Telescope (JWST) has captured the world's imagination, and we're going to dive into. I think, for me what you find exciting. Like I wake up every morning and uh, the first 15 minutes I'm catching up on science news. I don't watch CNN or Fox or any of that stuff. I dial in and there's always a uh, what's new in the universe type of, and that's awesome. Are you having like the time of your life right now? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's just like you said, there's there's new images almost daily, new discoveries now that are happening now that a scientists have had time to sort of delve into the images and find out what they're telling us. But yeah, it's it's one of the things I love most about this mission and about astronomy in general is that it's it is it's sort of this bright spot in our lives right now. All good you know? news. Yeah, it's good news, right? And I, I love it. I love that aspect of it. Yeah, the only thing that would be really a bummer is if, you know, the telescope discovered a black hole heading our way, or if, you know, like there's an asteroid about to like plummet into the earth. I mean, I, I remember someone saying, listen, you're, you're, you're uh, an asteroid coming towards the earth 
is a way of God saying, how is your space program doing? <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that is a fun way to put it, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. And we'll talk about black holes. We'll talk about all of these, these things in this conversation. And I'm going to speak to you about alien life in the universe because we've had that conversation and I want to share it. Um, so let's take a second and actually describe what is the James Webb Space Telescope because it's an extraordinary piece of technology. Um, you want to talk a little about the history and about, uh, you know, to, you know, describe uh, what makes this thing so significant? Sure. Um, well, just a little, a little personal aside, I've been working on this mission at NASA since I've been at NASA for almost 15 years now. Um, and so just to give a sense of scale of how big this mission is, not in terms of, well, also in addition to in terms of the physical size of the mission, but it's just, it's been going on for so long, you know, for, for well over 20 years, we've been um, building this telescope. And for even longer than that, we've been conceptualizing what it would do and how to build it in order to to do what we wanted it to do. Um, and so the JWST is the biggest, most complex and most powerful telescope that NASA has ever sent to space. And to build something that big and complex and incredible, um, it really has taken the collective effort of tens of thousands of people over almost three decades in order to bring this telescope to space. And it's, it's personally to me just been the most incredible thing I ever could have thought about working on in terms of astronomy. And uh, we're just, we're, we're so happy that it is, is up there and it's doing great things. It, it, it is. I mean, like I, I looked at the, I looked at the dates. It was conceived of in 1996 and launched in 2021. So that's a 25 year uh, moonshot. I'm going to call this one a moonshot. Is that fair enough? That's fair. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I have to ask the question, were there like significant moments of doubt along the way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, there were, there were several of those. Um, and you know, I think, and they happened of course, even long before I was on the mission myself. Um, but just thinking about dreaming about building a telescope this big, when we, when engineers first started thinking about how to build it, um, we didn't have the requisite technologies in order to actually build it when we got started. Um, engineers had to invent 10 brand new technologies just to make the telescope a reality. And when you're doing something that big and transformative, of course, there are gonna be points along the way uh, where you encounter major doubts, major setbacks, um, you know, it's, it's thankfully well in the past, but you know, Congress canceled the mission at one point. Um, and so talk about a setback. <laughs> um, thankfully, we, we uh, the, the astronomical community and really the public in general, um, you know, stepped in and said, this is something we think is worth doing. Um, and there was some, you know, reformulation at NASA and we, we convinced our funders that we could actually do this. Um, and it was, there were several points in the, in the mission where things were, and you know, it's reality. Dire. Yeah, I mean, over budget, 
over schedule, you know, all the things that tend to plague these, these big, big giant missions. This episode is brought to you by Levels. One of the most important things that I do to try and maintain my peak vitality and longevity is to monitor my blood glucose. More importantly, the foods that I eat and how they peak the glucose levels in my blood. Now, glucose is the fuel that powers your brain. It's really important. High prolonged levels of glucose, what's called hyperglycemia, leads to everything from heart disease to Alzheimer's to sexual dysfunction to diabetes, and it's not good. The challenge is all of us are different. Uh, all of us respond to different foods in different ways. Like for me, if I eat bananas, it spikes my blood glucose. If I eat grapes, it doesn't. If I eat bread by itself, I get this prolonged spike in my blood glucose levels. But if I dip that bread in olive oil, it blunts it. And these are things that I've learned from wearing a continuous glucose monitor and using the Levels app. So Levels is a company that helps you in analyzing what's going on in your body. It's continuous monitoring 24-7. I wear it all the time. It really helps me to stay on top of the food I eat, remain conscious of the food that I eat, and to understand which foods affect me based upon my physiology and my genetics. You know, on this podcast, I only recommend products and services that I use, that I use not only for myself, but my friends and my family, that I think are high quality and safe and really impact a person's life. So check it out, levels.link slash Peter. We'll give you two additional months of membership and it's something that I think everyone should be doing. Eventually this stuff is going to be in your body, on your body, part of our future of medicine today. It's a product that I think uh, I'm going to be using for the years ahead and hope you'll consider as well. You know, I want to just point something out here because it's really important for, for, because we talk about moonshots a lot on this, uh, on this podcast. And one of the things that I, that you said that is so true about moonshots is the idea that the technology to fulfill what you want to do doesn't exist when you set your objective. And because if it existed, it would be easy. Um, but inventing it along the way and setting something that is by all standards, huge, crazy, um, scares you, uh, but is not with it's within the realm of the laws of physics. So let's start with that. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's crazy. I mean, the other thing I remember when JWST announced it was going to go up on an Ariane 5, right? So this is the Europeans' largest launch vehicle uh, with the largest fairing. And, you know, Ariane 5 has a good track record, but not a perfect track record. And, I mean, just the fear that you would spend 25 years. Uh, what's the budget of this program? Uh, 10 billion U.S. and then okay, contributions. You, 25 years, 10 billion, and everything is riding on a single launch that uh -huh. has a, I don't know what the number was, 4% chance of not succeeding. That's got to be nerve-wracking. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, and space is nerve-wracking, nerve right? Space is hard. Like, every time we put something in space, we put it on top of a stack of explosives. You know, that's just, that's the only way to get to space. <laughs> um, and so it, it, it definitely, that, that moment of launch is for sure, I think for anyone that's ever worked on space programs is a very a scary moment. Um, but like you said, the Ariane 5 has a good record and it performs spectacularly. The rocket itself, the launch itself was so efficient, Peter, 
that we expect this telescope to have. It has propellant for over 20 years. Wow. Um, yeah. So explain that a second, because the life cycle of these uh, of spacecraft isn't necessarily sent uh, decided by how long the electronics live and so forth. It's how long it can point and how long it can remain in the right orbit, which is how much gas does it have on board? Mm-hmm. Exactly, and that was that was a major consideration uh, for this telescope, and of course. You know, you have these very constrained mass margins where you have to build the spacecraft to fit within, you know, a certain mass. And then whatever extra you have at the end, you pack on more fuel to to be able to keep it into orbit longer. Um, and your listeners probably know this, but of course, JWST is a million miles away. It orbits the sun um, in line with the Earth. Uh, but that's a semi-stable point in space. So it's not like you just put a spacecraft there and it will stick. So we have to use fuel to sort of keep it in that that orbit um, out a million miles from space. Let's describe this visually. So sure. uh, the moon is a quarter million miles away. Uh-huh. And we're talking about a spacecraft effectively on the other side of the moon by another four lengths of the Earth-moon distance, so a million miles away. Right in line between the sun and the earth in a Lagrange point, yes? Right, right, second Lagrange point. Amazing. Yeah. And and why there? So we put the telescope there um, mainly because in addition to being big, this telescope also had to be very, very cold. And the reason for that is the telescope observes the universe in infrared light. So you think about um, most of the images from Hubble that we see are visible light, light that your eyes see. In order to do the very transformational astronomy that we had planned for this telescopes, uh, we, we needed an infrared telescope. And infrared light, you can sort of think of it like heat radiation. And so in order for the telescope and the instruments to be able to take these faint infrared signals, the telescope itself has to be very, very, very cold. That's because if it was warm, it would sort of glow and see itself, essentially. So the telescope has to be cold, um, and that's one of the reasons we put it out uh, in that part of space. Um, And also being in that part of space means it can observe the universe um, functionally all the time, you know, except for when it's doing slews, when it's looking to a different place or something like that. Um, So it gives us really good um, efficiency of, of, of observations. Um, you think about Hubble, Hubble orbits the Earth. So it's only able to observe the universe, you know, half the time, because half the time it's sort of in the sun. Um, and so there's a lot of good reasons to put telescopes in that part of space. And eventually on the dark side of the moon, right? Yes. Uh, so yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Eventually, for sure. Yeah. Putting putting yeah, actual be, telescopes on the moon. Massive telescopes. Sure. Yeah. Huge telescopes on the other side, the dark side of the moon. You know, one thing, the when Hubble went up, and I remember the Hubble launch uh, went up in the in the payload bay of the space shuttle and it was a, a giant you know cylindrical telescope and it basically went up there fully assembled it had to have its solar panels deploy but that wasn't the case with JWST right it was a, a piece of origami art you can you explain that because uh, what constrained it and and how complex was its sort of deployment because that was epic in itself yeah, well, we talked about, you know, the the scary moments of launch for most space missions. And launch was 
not the scariest part of this mission, to be honest. So yeah, the telescope itself is so big. It stands almost four stories tall. It has a sun shield that's the size of a tennis court, so it's giant. It's much bigger than any rocket we have to launch it fully deployed. So we had to build the telescope, like you said, as an origami telescope. We folded it up um, to and put it in the rocket for launch, and then it unfolded once it was in space. So this deployment system took about two weeks total. Um, there were hundreds of individual deployments um, to get the telescope completely unfolded. There were over 300 single point failures on this oh telescope. <laughs> so if any one of them goes wrong, we're done. Um, so that's the kind of intensity we were all <laughs> experiencing over these two weeks of telescope deployments. It was absolutely pushing the edge of what we can do in an engineering sense. And it was, um, you know, people used to ask me all the time before launch, like, are you nervous? <laughs> and of course, you don't ever want to actually say you're nervous because our engineers have done all this work and we trust that they've done all they can in order to make it work. But oh, my goodness. But you, I mean, how do you test everything on the ground in one gravity when it's got to work in zero gravity in extreme temperature ranges? It sounds like, uh, you know, it's it's what the kind of engineering we can do in the last decade. That's exactly. Amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's incredible that, you know, I'm a, I'm a scientist, I'm an astrophysicist, but being able to work at NASA sort of alongside the engineers, if, as they built this telescope, it just, it, it blows me away what they were able to do to build this telescope, to get, to get it to work. It is just, it is so complex and the deployments happened beautifully. Um, you know, and then after that two weeks of deployments, we had another uh, five and a half months of getting the mirrors aligned, of getting the instruments turned on. So it was a total of six months after launch before we actually knew the thing was going to work. Um, and it's just it's absolutely incredible engineering. The telescope overall is, is working better than we expected across the board. So this has been the appetizer conversation. Now let's jump into the uh, to the main course here. So it works. Amazing. Congratulations to the entire NASA organization. This is quintessential NASA. As, as much as I or others may be critical of the organization, here it shines literally and figuratively above every other organization out there. So uh, Amber, what have been the most exciting things that you've seen? So I want to dive into this and and see it through your eyes. I mean, you know, I'm hearing about all kinds of crazy discoveries and theories that are being predicted or disputed. Let's dive in there. What are you finding exciting here? Yeah, I mean, and one of the wonderful things about this telescope and about any sort of big observatory is that it's able to do so much. You know, um, NASA has all kinds of different scales of telescopes, right? We have small telescopes that do one specific thing and then all the way to this sort of extreme end where we have this observatory that's able to look to the most distant regions of the universe all the way to our own solar system to looking at planets in our own solar system and everything in between um and in just this first it's really only been operational for about six months which is incredible in six months we already have you know all these amazing images all this incredible science and 
yeah, we could talk for hours <laughs> about the discovery, but if I'm going to pick one um, to, to, to delve into a little bit, for me, it would be these, um, the discovery of these very distant galaxies. Um, so I study galaxies and black holes, so that's my specialty. So I'll admit I will have a little bit of a bias here. <laughs> um, but one of the fundamental primary things that this telescope was designed to do was to be able to look back in time and see the very first epoch of galaxies that were born after the Big Bang. So we're talking about looking back in time over 13 and a half billion years. So the universe is, we think, about 13.8 billion years old. But there's this whole part of the early universe that we've never seen, that the epoch when galaxies first turned on. And we would never have been able to see them with Hubble because this is where we get back to infrared light and why infrared light was so important. We needed an infrared telescope to be able to detect these very early galaxies. And, you know, we hoped we would see them. It all depended on if our theories were right, you know, sort of fingers crossed. And then, just in the very first image, the, fir the first deep fields, they're everywhere. And the more that we, um, the more data that we take, the more of these deep fields that we're getting, the deeper that we're able to look, it seems like there are more galaxies in that part of space and that they're brighter and more evolved than any of our theories predict. I keep on hearing and seeing sort of stories like, you know, JWST disproves the Big Bang. Um, and I, I think that's not true. That's uh, not true. <laughs> okay, good. that's good. I mean, you know, we got to count on certain things in life and the Big Bang was one of those things I was counting on existing. Yep. But, um, but this is, I mean, is this like, you know, the hottest subject for galactic formation? I mean, it's like more and brighter and older. And what, what does that mean? What's the early theories? What are people, what's happening over the coffee uh, <laughs> the coffee filters these days. So we we don't quite know yet what it means. So that that's part of the the fun fun part of science, right? Is that um, you know before JWST we had theories, you know s simulations and theories of what the early universe was like, and those were built on physics, you know, and they were built on uh, also observations of what the current day universe looks like. So you know writing a code that sort of builds the universe for us. Um, and so we had theories of what we sh thought we should find um, in that very early epic. And what we're seeing is like, like I said, there's more, they're brighter, they're more well-formed. And so what does it mean? What we, we don't know yet, but we're, we're trying to think about, about ways that the early universe could have built galaxies so quickly um, and again, this is very, very early on, and with the caveat that I'm an observationalist and not a theorist. <laughs> okay. um, but we know, what we do know is that dark matter has uh, a yes. very critical role in how galaxies evolve. So, of course, dark matter is this unseen stuff in the universe that we know makes up a bulk of the matter in the universe, but we have no idea what it is. We have some theories. We call, we call it dark matter because we don't know what it is. Exactly. Right, right. Um, right. Uh, when astronomers have this annoying habit of when we don't know what something is, we label it dark. So we have dark matter, dark energy, 
Um, and we don't know what it is, but with dark matter, with dark matter at least, we can measure its effects on stuff we know about, like galaxies and stars. Um, and we can get a sense of at least what it's doing, even we, if we, we don't know what that it is. By it, by its gravitational pull. That's right. So um, dark matter uh, interacts gravitationally with normal matter. And so by looking at how things like galaxies are behaving, we're able to sort of get a sense of what the dark matter is doing. Um, and so what we know from these kinds of observations is that massive galaxies, all galaxies, are embedded in these what we call dark matter halos. So you know, you look at look at an image of a galaxy in, in any of these deep fields or think about the image of the Andromeda galaxy. And, you know, that's only about 10% of the mass of all the stuff. So there's this massive halo of dark matter around all galaxies. Um, and it's just, it's sort of intuitive that if there's that much other stuff, that it must have an effect on how the galaxies themselves are evolving. And we think that those effects might have been even, you know, stronger in the early universe. So um, that's a long-winded way to say that we don't know yet what's going on <laughs> and how we're going to have to tweak our theories of the early universe. But the observations are, they're the reality. They're telling us um, that something is amiss and we have to figure figure out what we need to tweak. Let's put some dimensions on this. So you said uh, our galaxy, according to current theories, is 13.8 billion. And... The numbers that I hear, um, we have an average galaxy. Let me throw. Let me try these out on you. You tell me where I'm wrong. The average galaxy is 100 million, 100 billion stars in a galaxy per galaxy. And the current theory on how many galaxies there are in the universe, and I've heard everything from 200 billion to 20 trillion galaxies. And um, so. Where do you, what number do you choose for the number of galaxies in our universe? Well, one of the annoying things about us astronomers is a lot of our answers are, are we don't know for sure. <laughs> um, but it's, it's almost certainly somewhere in that range. And, and um, you know, the couple hundred billion to 20 trillion. Um, and that is backed up not only by theory, but also by observations. So um, we take these, these deep images of the universe. So... Um, you know, my example a year ago or six months ago was always think about the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, which is still yes. a, a great beautiful. field. A beautiful, beautiful image. And if you're watching us on YouTube, we'll, we'll, we'll put it up here. It's just like every dot, every point of light on, on this, you know, they took Hubble and they pointed it at the darkest point in the sky, right? Is that mm -hmm. correct? Right, And right. every point of light is not a star, it's a galaxy. And God, it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, and the original Hubble Deep Field uh, actually came out um, when I was like in high school. And so that was one of the things that I already knew I wanted to be an astronomer, but it was one of the things that was like blew my mind. Like, oh my God, look at all these galaxies. You know, this is what I have to do with my life. Um, <laughs> but, but so I always use the Hubble Ultra Deep Field and it's still a great example. But of course now yeah. we have deep fields with JUST and it's just like galaxies everywhere. But yeah, so we could still take the Hubble Deep Field as an example in this image, um, which, by the way, is a teeny tiny little piece of sky. It's like if you hold your pinky out at arm's distance, you can cover up the little tiny piece of sky, much less than the size of the full moon on the sky, in 10,000 galaxies, right? 
Um, and still, we know we're missing galaxies in that view, galaxies that now JWST has been able to see. But you can kind of just do easy statistics, you know, by thinking, okay, there's 10,000 galaxies in that little spot, multiply it by the times you would need to to cover the sky. And that's where we sort of get these numbers. You know, I'm a, I'm a geek. Do you, guys, do you remember uh, from chemistry something called Avogadro's number? Yeah, of course. Uh -huh. Yeah, 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd. It's the number of... Uh, of atoms in a mole. And, and uh, I was playing with the numbers, and if you multiply the number of, of stars per galaxy times the estimate of the number of galaxies in the universe, you get pretty close to Avogadro's number. You, it's inside that range. So That's super interesting. I, it is interesting. I don't know. I'm going to keep out on that for a minute. But, so, so yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess uh, to summarize, there's, there's hundreds of billions of galaxies and perhaps trillions of galaxies. And, and do you, do you ascribe to the idea that there might be an infinite number of universes too? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the multiverse theory, um, it's theory again, um, and I'm, I'm an observer, uh, but yeah, the, it, it, it sort of, it even aesthetically kind of makes sense, you know, uh, to think that our universe is the only one. I don't know. It's outside the realm of um, of observational confirmation, at least right now. So it is that is very much theory. So if you're having a bad day today and you're concerned about something, just think about, you know, a sort of perspective in the universe. It's OK. There's, you know, <laughs> 20 trillion galaxies out there and, you know, an infinite number of universes. Infinite so, number of universes. Oh, yeah. my God. That's <laughs> insane. Um, how do you sleep at night? <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know, it's it's one of the things about astronomy is you can really quickly get into like the existential dread realm. But I choose to, to look at it in a, in a positive way. You know, the universe gives me joy. It makes me happy. It it fills me with a sense of awe and wonder, uh, which is why I think astronomy is so great. The, chi the child, you know, this, this is the nine-year-old Peter here just having a blast talking to an incredible astronomer. So, uh, so uh, looking at the earliest galaxies that formed and seeing more of them, brighter, uh, what else has uh, JWST sort of uncovered for us in the first only six months of its existence? So we've also been able to, sort of on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, now talking about the nearby universe, um, we've been able to already do some really incredible um, exoplanet discoveries. So thinking about planets that orbit other stars. And when we first started thinking about JWST, we didn't even know of confirmed exoplanets, right? We thought they probably were out there, but we hadn't seen them yet. So let's define an exoplanet for folks. Yeah, so an exoplanet is a planet that's orbiting another star outside of our solar system. And yeah, when I was a kid, we didn't even know about them. Um, but now we know that they're everywhere. And this has also been a revolution in astronomy, really just within the last decade, uh, thanks to telescopes like the Kepler or the TESS uh, telescope. Um, it's an absolute paradigm shift in our understanding that our Milky Way galaxy is literally teeming with planets. Like if you go outside tonight and point up at a random star, Almost certainly, it has at least one planet orbiting, and probably more. And that's just so. So this is fascinating, right? Because, because I don't know how long ago what Kepler is now. What fifteen years ago, roughly something, something like that. Something like right? that. Mm -hmm. And and Kepler was the telescope that was looking for planets by occlusion, 
right? It was looking for what exactly? Um, so, so the way uh, Kepler and Tess also they they basically look at stars and they watch for a little dip in light um, of the star. And if that dip in light is very regular, it could be because a planet is orbiting it and is causing its light to to go down periodically. And it be just in the plane of that star planet orbit right luckily so right it has to be perfectly lined up um if it was you know face on you wouldn't see the transit um so yeah transits is what is what um kepler uh, and tess are are looking for and yeah it's it's the same thing it's statistics you know by by looking at a little patch of sky looking at the stars figuring out how many of these transits we see and sort of doing the math that would say okay if we see this many that means this other amount is probably probably also have planets that are at another angle that we're just not seeing um yeah so our milky way galaxy has a couple hundred billion stars and probably trillions of planets yes i man the, the trekkie inside me is like <laughs> let's go find them um i will talk about that in a minute but that's crazy because it wasn't too long ago that the that theory actually had no idea if there were planets out there. Were, were the nine planets, depending on if you include Pluto or not, I'm still a, I'm still a fan of Pluto as a planet. Yeah. I don't know about you. Yes, <laughs> Pluto as a planet. I mean, I, I, mean come on. I, have, I have affection for Pluto. I'll say that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, uh, uh, these dwarf dwarf planets. I don't know. I still think of Pluto as a planet. It's got two moons, for God's sakes. Yeah, true. Anyway, <laughs> well, let's not go there. Uh, but ha- interesting how the sort of the paradigm change to maybe planets exist to planets are everywhere. Yeah. Right. Absolutely we saw that incredible. as well in an area that you're passionate about, which is black holes. Uh-huh. Right. Cause uh, I mean the theory of black holes and did they exist? Do they exist? How many are there? And I guess, is it the theory now that there is a black hole at the center of every galaxy? Yep. Is that true? That's true. Yeah. Um, every every massive galaxy, at least, which is pretty much all of the galaxies that we know, um, yeah, has not only a black hole at the center, but a gigantic, supermassive black hole at the center um, with the mass of, you know, thousands to many hundreds of millions times the mass of the sun. So these monster black holes exist at the center of every galaxy, including our own Milky Way. Wow. Um and what about the thing that worries me a little bit, like micro black holes sort of wandering around the universe? Is that a thing? Um, well, I'll say it doesn't keep me up at night, uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, primordial black holes are, are certainly, uh, you know, also in the realm of, of theory uh, that there could have been these these sort of microscopic black holes that formed very early in the universe. Um, and because they are so small, they could still be lurking around and wreaking havoc on the universe. Um, we don't have any observations yet to back that up. So, like I said, I don't, I don't lose a lot of sleep over it. But it's a, it's a fun theory. Yeah. What, what about, what are you doing in the black hole world? What's your uh, area of passion there? So I am interested in these supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies. So I'm glad that's the one you thought of first. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm really interested in how galaxies change over time. Um, and 
how you know we look we look in the early universe and we see that galaxies look very different than galaxies in the present day nearby universe look um you know you think of a galaxy and what probably comes to mind is large spiral arms you know very organized structure like our milky way um and that's what a lot of big galaxies you know in the universe today are like but when we look into the distant past into the early universe um, galaxies are much different and now we know that like you said galaxies have these giant black holes at their centers so those black holes must have an effect on how the galaxies change and vice versa the galaxies have an effect on the the black holes um so i'm interested in how those processes play out like how does um a galaxy that's actively um that has a, a black hole at the center that's sort of actively feeding accreting material how does that impact how the galaxy grows um, how does that impact how the galaxy forms stars? Um, those kind of processes. And is is uh, the James Webb Telescope playing into that? Absolutely, um, in really big ways, actually, <laughs> uh, because in addition to you know searching for these very very distant very early galaxies, having this giant telescope that's able to observe the universe in infrared light means that we can study galaxies. Uh, that are actively forming stars in their earlier stages of formation. So it's sort of the same concept, whereas Hubble is only able to look back so far, um, with JWST, we're able to push back even further and see these processes playing out earlier in the universe um, to, to help us, again, just sort of put together that picture um, of how galaxies evolved you know, over the course of cosmic history. A brief note from our sponsors. Let's talk about sleep. Sleep has become one of my number one longevity priorities in life. You know, getting eight deep, uninterrupted hours of sleep is one of the most important things you can do to increase your vitality and energy and increase the health span that you have here on Earth. You know, when I was in medical school years ago, I used to pride myself on how little sleep I could get. You know, it used to be five, five and a half hours. Today, I pride myself on how much sleep I can get and I shoot for eight hours every single night. Now, usually I'm great at going to sleep. If I'm exhausted, you know, I've worked a hard day, I'm right out. But if I'm having difficulty, and it occurs, I'm having insomnia or my mind's overactive and I need help to get that eight hours, I turn to a supplement product by Life Force called Peak Rest. Now, Peak Rest has been formulated with an extraordinary scientific depth and background includes everything from long-lasting melatonin to magnesium to L-glycine to rosemary extract, just to name a few. This product is about creating a sense of rest and really giving you the depth and length of sleep that you need for recovery. It's a product I hope you'll try. It works for me and I'm sure it will work for you. If you're interested, go to mylifeforce.com backslash Peter uh, to get a discount from Lifeforce on this product but you'll also see a whole set of other longevity and vitality related supplements that I use. We'll talk about them some other time, but in terms of sleep, Peak Rest is my go-to supplement. Hope you'll enjoy it. Go to mylifeforce.com backslash Peter for your discount. So we've talked about uh, uh, finding these early galaxies. We've talked about uh, exoplanets, but we didn't finish on exoplanets. We, we talked about Kepler and TESS being the mechanism, what have we been seeing with the JWST in terms of exoplanets? Yeah, so um, we, so like you said, Kepler, TESS, um, what they do is they sort of watch the, the stars to find the planets. And 
by doing that simple analysis, the simple transit, like, oh, there went a planet crossed in front of its star, we're able to do some sort of basic uh, analysis of what that system is like. So the combined mass of the planet and the star, um, obviously how long the, the planet takes to orbit. Um, but with JWST, the whole goal is to watch those transits. So watch the planet as it passes in front of the star. And then look at the starlight as it filters through the planet's atmosphere. So this is incredibly, incredibly hard because planets are, are tiny and the stars are so bright. Um, and, a, and a planet's atmosphere is just, you know, you've probably seen the, the beautiful images of the Earth from the International Space Station. You know, just this little sliver of an atmosphere on the earth it's like the skin of an orange they call yeah. it the skin of an apple right on top of it exactly so you can imagine trying to look in detail at starlight as it filters through those atmospheres is really hard to do uh but with jvc we're doing it more easily quicker more efficiently even than we had hoped so let me ask a couple of questions here so number one are we with uh, with Kepler, you couldn't actually visualize the planet. You were just looking at this dip in uh, in the intensity of the starlight that gave you a rough size of the the orbital. Uh, uh, you knew the size of the star, and if you knew how quickly it was orbiting, you could infer the mass of the planet and 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 such. Um, are we actually visualizing the planet itself with JWST? So mainly, what we're doing is taking spectra of the atmosphere. Um, we are able to do direct imaging with JRIS-T um, with uh, basically a technology that sort of blocks out the light of the star so that you can see the dimmer stuff around it. Um, and so we, we, and we've released a couple of those images, direct images of, of exoplanets, but they're just little tiny pixels, you know, you, not a lot to see. And now, when you see the spectra, all right, with the sunlight, the starlight, not sunlight, the starlight coming through the atmosphere tells us what that atmosphere is made of, right? And, and what are you? What are we looking for when we're looking through that spectra? Right. So that that's the critical thing, right? Is that by doing taking these spectra, we're able to see the fingerprints of the atmosphere, um, and also just another great thing about the infrared part of the spectrum is a lot of really interesting um, molecules lie in that infrared part of the spectrum. So we're talking about things like water vapor and carbon dioxide and methane, those kind of chemicals that could potentially point to habitable surface. Now, what about oxygen, free oxygen? Because I, I think that's the holy grail for is there life? That's what I... Yeah, here at least. Yeah. So yeah, my exoplanet friends tell me <laughs> that you really need a, a certain... By the way, how cool it is to say, I've got exoplanet friends. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah right, right. I, yeah, I have some good exoplanet friends. They're doing awesome stuff. Um, but, but yeah, so you need like very definitive um, ratios um, of these different um, signatures and able to be able to sort of point to a, a planet and say that was got life on it and we of course don't have that yet we probably won't get that with JWST we're probably going to need the next big telescope um, in order to find that um, that being said 
you know, uh, the telescope is doing awesome things. And we, we found the first uh, definitive detection of carbon dioxide in an exoplanet, which is incredible. Um, and so, you know, while while I don't think we're going to be able to to def- definitively find life with this telescope, um, it's definitely our next big step in that that huge epic journey of searching for life in the universe. Yeah. OK, I'm going to go there. So, uh, I mean, I think if there's like one thing that will define uh, a generation uh, is its discovery of life in the universe, definitive life that's not, you know, sitting here on planet Earth. And uh, that could come from Mars or some of the moons of Jupiter or Saturn, um, or it could come from one of these advanced telescope discoveries. But I remember asking you this question, and I'll ask it to you again. <clears throat> you have two options on this on this quiz. One, we are the first. Uh, Earth is unique. Uh, intelligent life, we're precious. We need to protect it. Option number two, life in the universe is ubiquitous. What do you think? I think it's ubiquitous. Yeah. I, I still too. think we need to protect the planet. Okay, and protect- no question. <laughs> okay, I'm, still, I'm still, you know, happy to be a human living on planet Earth. But I do think life in the universe is ubiquitous. You know, it's interesting when I, I don't know if we had this conversation, I was thinking about how, when, how much life could there be? So if we stick with the 13.8 billion years of this solar, of this universe, and then you ask like, what is the heaviest element that is required for the human body? I think it's like iodine. And if you ask, when did iodine come into the solar evolution, you know, the life birth, life birth of stars, I think it's like a billion years after the Big Bang, iodine would have would have uh, uh, come into existence. And so, you know, okay, let's add like five billion years for margin. <laughs> so, what does, what does life look like? That's you know, five. You know, is, if you say life could have existed five billion years ago, what does it look like compared to us? Um, we can't predict what life will be like a hundred years from now, let alone a million or five billion. Yeah. It's it's fascinating. Um, it, it really is to think, you know, I mean, we're obviously human centric. We think about us looking outward uh, for life. Um, but how likely is it that, you know, another life form has already found us? You know, it's just it's incredible to think about it. And I do think it's ubiquitous. I think space is so big. It is it's sort of preposterous to think that we're the only ones. I mean, we've yes, already exactly. We've, we've already touched on it. You know, there's a couple hundred billion stars just in our Milky Way. And there's hundreds of billions of other galaxies, other Milky Ways, essentially. And trillions of stars, again, just within our little home galaxy. Trillions of planets, yeah. Tr- trillions of planets, I meant, yeah. So, yeah, there's got to be others out there. Although the, the converse to that, of course, is that because space is big, it gives us the possibility but also because space is big, it makes it very, very hard to detect life. And so I sort of think that, well, I definitely think there's, there is other, are other life forms out there. I don't know that we would ever make contact with them just because the travel times are so big. It's kind of lonely. Yeah, I, I, I get it. I'm still holding out for warp, warp drive, but you know. Well, uh, me too. You know, we, we, know, we know so little about the universe and its laws fully. We have some basics that we need to uh, relate to and, and respect, but I sure am hoping for a lot more. 
and you know as quantum technologies come online and we start you know and ai comes online even greater i'm, I'm hoping we'll have some interesting discoveries there you know I, I saw an article recently that said because we're discovering uh, the size of in the early galaxies and because of the rate at which the universe is expanding, even if we were able to travel the speed of light, we still couldn't get to ever get to 80% of the stars out there in the universe or something like that. I found that a fascinating. Yeah, that idea is is really um, incredible. And yeah, just just thinking about, of course, the universe is accelerating in its expansion or it's going faster and faster all the time. Um, you know, that at some point in the far future, provided humans, you know, make it, <laughs> um, you know, there will be a time when looking up at the sky, we wouldn't even be able to see any other galaxies, you know? So think about those future humans because, because space will have accelerated so much that the sort of horizon distance, the distance to which you can see, um, basically precludes there be any, being any other galaxies in your sky. And so... Those those future humans, this this is probably going to be after the Earth um, is already engulfed by the sun. So we presuming we would have made it to somewhere more hospitable. Um, would only think that the Milky Way is all that there is. So looking at it that way, like what a wonderful time we live in. We live in this particular point in cosmic history when we can know this much about the universe. You know, it, the the anthropomorphic model, you know, or is our our myopic human-centric point of view that has dominated a lot of astronomy over the ages, right? Like the Earth's the center of the universe. Um, and then uh, not long ago, I think it's true that uh, we believed there was only a single galaxy. The Milky Way was all there was. Isn't that correct? Right, right. I mean, yeah, we that's all we had sort of reason to to believe until we got telescopes <laughs> and could see these little, you know, these little fuzzy dots, these little island universes uh, that we discovered. Um, and yeah, that sort of expanded our view. And then, of course, not wondering if planets were unique. So, you know, it's it's interesting. We have such a uh, a our our understanding of the fundamentals are constantly being uh, being blown away. So I have a theoretical question for you, and um, I'm wondering if you're, if you're game for this. So it's five years from now, uh-huh. and uh, headlines around the world are discussing a discovery from the James Webb Space Telescope that is like epic. What would that headline be about? Give me, you can give me a couple if you want. Like what? Yeah. I'm going to say if we're talking epic as in maybe unexpected, but really, you know, transformational, I would say it would be that discovery of, you know, a planet that has a surface that has some life form on it. Um, So I think that I think that when we do and I believe we will, when we do discover life elsewhere off off of our planet, that that's going to be, you know, a society changing moment. Um, and the thing about JRST is if we're really, really lucky, and if one of those planets does exist nearby enough, close enough, and if we're able to observe it for long enough in order to, you know, detect the things we need, it's I, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. Um I think it's probably unlikely, um, but 
I, I think that that would be the most transformational thing we could discover. Amazing. Any other ones? I mean, like with theories being proven or disproven, and you know, that'd be true. It's like, you know, what could it possibly be? Yeah. So, I mean, another, and it's it's a little hard to to even pin down, but okay. um, to discover more about the nature of dark matter, um, dark, okay. dark energy, these big, big mysteries. Um, it's just, it's so, it's so wild. <laughs> that, that we don't know um, what it is. That we don't know what it is and that it's almost everything at the same time, right? Of all these trillions of galaxies, trillions of planets that we've talked about, all the stuff we can see, all the stuff we can sense, all that stuff, as immense as it is, only makes up 5% of the universe, right? 95% of the universe is something we don't understand at all. And so to think that we could make some big, um, you know, revolutionary dis discovery about the nature of dark matter or dark energy would be, um, that would be, that would be incredible. Hey everybody, this is Peter. A quick break from the episode. You know, I'm a firm believer that science and technology and how entrepreneurs can change the world is the only real news out there worth consuming. I don't watch the crisis news network I call CNN or Fox and hear every devastating piece of news on the planet. I spend my time training my neural net the way I see the world by looking at the incredible breakthroughs in science and technology, how entrepreneurs are solving the world's grand challenges, what the breakthroughs are in longevity, how exponential technologies are transforming our world. So twice a week, I put out a blog. One blog is looking at the future of longevity, age reversal, biotech, increasing your health span. The other blog looks at exponential technologies, AI, 3D printing, synthetic biology, AR, VR, blockchain. These technologies are transforming what you as an entrepreneur can do. If this is the kind of news you want to learn about and shape your neural nets with, go to demandis.com backslash blog and learn more. Now back to the episode. So I want to go back to the discoveries that we've seen in the first six months. And just again, we're we're six months on a 20 year plus roadmap here. And and by the way, Hubble is still making discoveries, right? Absolutely. Hubble's still going strong and it's it's so awesome to have these two telescopes in space at the same time. Yeah, I'm I'm amazed by that. But by the way, let's take a second to describe the difference between the two. So you said James Webb is infrared, mostly. Uh, Hubble is visual. Um, the cost budget change, I have a, actually a comparison chart here. I'll, I'm gonna use my crib notes here on my exam. Uh, Two billion for Hubble, 10 billion for James Webb. Um, uh, Size-wise, I mean, probably, can you give me a, a sense of magnification difference? Sure, um, so yeah, si size-wise, Hubble's sort of the size of a school bus, a little bit bigger, and we've already talked about the size of James T. Uh, magnification-wise, it's sort of, I mean, it's sort of hard to think about magnification in the sense of like a backyard telescope, but when we're talking power, so it's sort of observing power overall, so when we're thinking about things like um, efficiency of the detectors, efficiency of the observing, um, all those things built, built together, or considered together make JWST about a hundred times more powerful than Hubble. Um, the the 
um, the resolution of the images um, is about the same because you get a little bit of a trade-off between um, wavelength and diameter of the of the mirror. So that's just physics. Um, but when we're looking at similar wavelengths between the two, um, you know, it's, I mean, you just, you look at the images of Hubble or of JWST and compare it to Hubble and you can see the difference, right? You can see, you can see that it's a much more powerful telescope. So are, are scientists like battling it out to get access on, on uh, the web telescope? I mean, it's like, are they hand wrestling? Are they bribing? Are they like <laughs> are queuing up? I mean, how are they, how are they getting, cause it must be like, you know, the hottest, uh, you know, the hottest user group out there. It definitely is. Um, and in fact, uh, our proposals to use the telescope were just due last Friday. <laughs> uh, so I spent the weekend resting. Um, so yeah, the way it works is that once a year, um, astronomers from all over the world get together and teams usually and propose their best ideas for using the telescope. Just here's what I want to look at. Here's why it's so important. And then another team of astronomers gets together and reviews the proposals and ranks them. Um, and that it's all dual anonymous. Uh, so everything's anonymous. And um, and then, yeah, the best proposals get awarded time to, to use the telescope. And one of the awesome things about this telescope data from NASA that I, I find not a lot of people even realize is that it's all public. Um, you know, sometimes there are certain cases where the proposer gets a, a, a year of proprietary time, a year of exclusive access. But then after that, it goes online. It goes in an archive and anyone in the world can access it and download it. That's, that's amazing. And, you know, I remember uh, years ago, I, I, I knew the head of the uh, Viking program back when I was in high school. And uh, Gerald Sothen was his name. And and, oh, yeah. and Goddard, yeah, yeah, he was a tremendous mentor for me. And uh, I remember him saying, like, we've looked at a fraction, like less than one percent of all the data that came back from Viking at that time. And it's like I, I just think for anybody who is a you know in their heart hearts an astronomer, being able to get access to that data and then to use generative AI and all of the uh, you know the ability to write algorithms to look at it. I mean, the era of the uh, uh, you know citizen astronomer could be huge, for sure. And it, it already is getting there um, with all of this data. Um, even even with the advanced sort of quantitative analysis techniques, you know, there's all these new, um, really cutting edge things going on in machine learning with astronomical data, which is really really cool. But right now, at the end of the day, the human brain is still the best at, for example, picking out patterns. Um, so citizen science is, is a big, big thing, and it's going to get even bigger as we have more data coming online. That's amazing. Um, any other uh, special areas of discovery or any of the, your favorite images that you want to chat about that came out of in the last six months? Oh, there's just so many. It's hard to know where I mean, to it's start. It's gorgeous, right? It's like... <laughs> It's like between between stability, you know, stable diffusion, and Dolly two and the James Webb Telescope. I'm like, it's it's visualization overload. Yeah, it's 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 awesome. I mean, it's been it's it's just been su such a fun <laughs> six months. Um, one of the really fun parts about my job at NASA is that I um, review a lot of the material that 
that comes online that com- before it's public. Um, and that's, I've been doing that for years. You know, I review all our news, press releases, all that kind of stuff. And so I was in the queue to get to see the first images before they were released to the public. And I kid you not, I mean, they brought tears to my eyes. Seeing those images for the first time was just, it was it was overwhelming in a, in a lot of ways. Um, particularly the Carina, the image of the Carina Nebula. Um, okay, and we'll show that for folks watching, but what, describe yeah. it to us. So the Carina Nebula is this, um, image of basically a stellar nursery so it's it's a it's a region within our own milky way galaxy i think it's about 7600 light years away so that's quote unquote nearby um but it's this place that's just teeming with star formation um and in the in the image we're seeing newborn stars we're seeing hundreds of stars in this image for the very first time but the thing to me that's so visually striking about it is it just, it's this, it looks almost like a mountain, almost like, you know, something you would expect to encounter on Earth. You know, it's this beautiful orangish nebulosity with um, blue, you know, the blue background of space above it. Um, it turns out that in this image, there are these giant newborn stars uh, up above, like out of the view of the image, but that their their radiation and stellar winds are sort of pressing down on this gaseous material. And you can see it, like you can see almost that that's what's happening um, in this beautiful image. And it's just, it's just so, it's so stunningly beautiful. Uh, it's probably still my favorite. It's like my background on all my computers and on my phone and all that. It's just, it's, it's wonderful. Want to pick one more favorite? Oh yeah, sure. Um, I mean, <laughs> there are so I, many thousands. I know. Um, but um, and it, it, the the deep fields. I mean. Yeah. The, the, the first image that we released, that President Biden released, um, I got to go to the White House for that event. It was so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that first image of that galaxy cluster um, is just, aside from the sheer beauty of it, it just, it was such an awesome demonstration of just how incredible this telescope is. Because it is, you can see the depth of the image. You know, you can see, again, it's a, it's a deep field type image there's a galaxy cluster in the center. So all of the sort of light, white looking galaxies you see at the center um, are mirror. And then you see the, the thousands of galaxies in the background. Um, and then you see these little wisps, these little sort of wispy uh, elongated structures kind of around the edges of the image. And what those are, are actually direct evidence of dark matter. Um, because what's happening in this particular image, um, this was the S-Max cluster. Um, it, in the center, you've got a galaxy cluster. And that's, a galaxy cluster is exactly what it sounds like. It's where a bunch of galaxies are packed together pretty tightly in space, like a galactic city in space. Um, and we know, again, that there are, there's dark matter surrounding all of these galaxies in this huge galaxy cluster. And the combined mass of that dark matter is causing galaxies from the background to be magnified and stretched out. So the dark matter is acting as a giant cosmic lens, just like if you know you took a wine glass and you look through it and it stretches and stretches the light that's coming through it. Same thing's happening in space. It's the exact same physics. Um, and so it's just like this one snapshot 
encapsulates all these awesome things about the universe, these distant galaxies, and the fact that there's dark matter, and the fact that dark matter behaves in a way that we can understand. Um, and it and it's also, it's just beautiful. It's just so pretty. <laughs> One of the things I, I love is that uh, we pointed the JWST at things that we pointed Hubble at before, and all of a sudden you see it with renewed levels of detail, right? Like uh, there was one, uh, the Southern Ring Nebula that uh, all of a sudden comes into brilliant life in the infrared spectrum with that resolution. Or it was uh, looking at, at, at one of Titan's moons and seeing cloud layers in the atmosphere. So that's pretty, pretty amazing. Mm -hmm.